Hello, golf fans. Welcome to episode 43 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, the show that talks about stuff most other podcasts don't. Do you reckon that's true, Luke? That's a bit of hyperbole, really, isn't it? It's it's our it's our tagline. The show that talks about some stuff that some other podcasts don't. We're just watering it down now, aren't we? Yeah. So no, I just bravely stand don't, by. Don't overthink it. Boldly stand by. Talks yep. about everything else that everyone else talks about. Yeah, we might have to workshop that. Yep. We might come up with a new tag. Don't, don't anyway. speak until you've spoken to us. Right, sorry. <laughs> First <laughs> rule of fight, club. podcast where the guest erupts <laughs> before he's introduced. That's right. Uh, regular <laughs> listeners know me as Rod Murray, as do my family and friends, because that is my name. I'm the host of this weekly expedition into the various rabbit holes of golf, and today will be no exception when we once again welcome to welcome the Kim Kardashian of the golf podcast world to the microphone. Yes, the dulcet tones of Michael Anthony Clayton. I was. Go- I had written here coming up shortly, but he's already been heard. Mm-hmm. So more of the dulcet tones of Michael Anthony Clayton coming up shortly, and that is always a treat. But first, my co-host, Path Connoisseur Adrian Loger, seems to have caught on this past week, Mister All Right. I actually didn't mean to do that to you uh, last week. I think you're more than all right. You've, you've almost reached okay. Oh, is that, is that on right? Scale. I'm, I'm to- not loving the All Right thing. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's a little medium. Where can we find you? Where can you find me? And where can we find Clates? Uh, I'm at. Adrian Logue on Twitter. You're at Rod underscore Mori. And Clates has recently updated his Twitter it profile was. to be something more sensible than <laughs> Michael Clayton. M. M. 15, Clayto 15475. It it's uh, uh, Mike Clayton Golf, I think. I think is Mike, that right? Mike he can confirm for us in, uh, in just a moment. Now, do you know why I ask you to do that every week? Because all the podcasts about podcasting constantly mention that you should tell people where to find it. Is that right? Okay. You're, you make a study of this. <sighs> I do a lot of listening to podcasts about podcasts. You're a professional. Well, I do my very best. I do my very best. And, of course, you can email me, rod, at talkinggolf.com, just one G, in Talkin' Golf. Uh, remind me later that we must get into the habit of uh, doing a golf highlight. We wanted to start that some weeks ago, and we never went on with it. I know you've got a golf highlight this sure. week, so I particularly okay. want to come back to that. A little bit later. Enough about us. We've got a guest patiently waiting. Well, not so patient. Uh, in fairness, there's not much else for him to do. I'm reminded of the saying that a gilded cage is still a cage. Clates, you're in lockdown in paradise on the Mornington Peninsula, less than a lob wedge from the magnificent St Andrews Beach course. You've had your wings clipped again with stage four restrictions announced in Victoria. No goal for six weeks. That must be heartbreaking when you're so close to such a great course, which I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you had a hand in designing St Andrews Beach. We did, yeah. So, um, Andrew Clayton, too, Michael Andrew. I'm not sure where you got oh, Andrew from. Sorry. sorry. That's right. Um, yeah, it's down the road, and I'm sure I could go and play golf there on my own and not infect anybody or get infected myself, but that's the way it is. And I think if you're locking down, basically locking down a whole city, it's a pretty bad look for golf to have golfers out there playing. Well, we'll, we'll talk so, about bad looks for golf, <laughs> as we just did. That's um, the right thing to do, even though there's no evidence that the virus has been spread by golf. Yeah, it's. By the way, yeah, we're in the house for six weeks, and we're allowed out to walk on the beach for an hour, which is nice because the beach is beautiful down here. Mm-hmm. So we'll make the most of it. You yeah, indeed. Now, people who've heard you on the multitude of other podcasts that you've been on should notice a difference this week because Clates, Logue, 
has a new microphone. He does. He's yeah. even worked out how it's to a use a whole new era the of headphone. podcasting for Mike Clayton. <laughs> and for all of those people who <laughs> like to listen. You'll listen back one day, Clayton, to some of your previous things and you'll think to yourself, why the hell didn't I do that microphone thing earlier? But your wife, Deb, got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago with some options of microphones she was looking at and you're now the proud owner of a Rode microphone who do make the best gear in the business for podcasting. So the Rode NT-USB Mini, unpaid, I can tell you, is a great it's microphone. It's an ad. So hope that... Uh, Hope that you're enjoying that. The PGA's on this week, Clates, and this weird 2020 year that we've had continues. Nowhere near the hype. The majors are all out of whack. They're being played in the wrong order. No Open. US Open still to come, I think, next month. Masters supposedly in November. You've been around the game, I'll put this diplomatically, for some time. Uh, Have you ever known a season kind of like this for professional golf? It's been the bulk of your life, but what a bizarre surreal world we're sort of living in, Clates. Almost no well, hope about the PGA. Not only pro golf, the whole world is. I mean, true. Yeah, can you, can you imagine that you weren't allowed out of your house in Melbourne after 8 o'clock at night? Wow. Mm. Wow, I forgot about that. Jeez, 8 o'clock curfew. It's, um, it's pretty hardcore. So, uh, it's Does that put golf hard. in perspective, Clates? I'm not sure it does. Um, I, I guess it does a little bit. I mean, yeah, it's just a brutal world for people running small business or you know it's it's um it's unimportant in that sense i mean no one's apart from people in the golf business no one's losing their job because we can't play golf but people who run small businesses that can't open for six weeks it's um it's a brutal time for them so people moaning about not being able to play golf uh, missing the point i think Couldn't but be more. The, there was a 1971 that PGA Championship was the first major of the year really? in Florida when Jack Nicholas won. So it's not the only time it's been the first major of the year. In Florida? Where did they play in Florida? Florida. Sorry, when did they? Oh, where? What, what course did they, they play? They played that uh, PGA National course. That, oh, okay. Um, you know, that thrilling, <laughs> thrilling golf course in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> where real- they played the 83 Ryder Cup and now where they play the is it the Honda Classic? Is that where they play that thing? The bear trap at the end? Oh God! Don't start that. That's that whole couple of months where you got the bear. Pa- you got the bear trap, the snake pit, and the Amen. some Florida. mile, some mile. What is uh, it? Um, yeah. Quail Hollow. Yep. The 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 I don't know the, the crazy miles. I mean, the last three holes there, especially. Yes, we, we've uh, we've had enough of that. What do you know about Harding Park, where the PGA is going to be this week, Clades? Anything? Nothing except that I watched the video flyer of the golf course on Jeff Shackelford's website. So, uh, and I spoke to someone who was there last week and I said, is it narrow fairways line with high rough? He said, exactly. So if you watch Shackelford's website on his, uh, sorry, his flyover on his website, you can see it looks like a succession of narrow fairways bordered by high rough with cart paths and trees and insipid bunkers, as Jeff called them. So I'm not sure it's any great architectural masterpiece, Unlike the LPGA last week in Inverness, which was one of America's great courses. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch much. How did it come up? Logue was complaining about the bunkers being in, in the rough. Inverness looked magnificent, but yeah, the bunkers were in the rough. And what, yeah, what is really that about? I was, that. I was messaging with Christina Kim last week. Sorry, last night about why are all the bunkers in the rough? I don't get it. We talk about the outsize influence that Augusta has on golf in America and golf around the world. Normally negatively you know people are obsessed with green grass and perfect conditioning but the one thing augusta well augusta gets a lot of things right but one thing it gets perfect are mowing lines 
None of the bunkers are surrounded by grass. The fairways are wide. They've put that silly cut of second rough in that's kind of ineffective. And But why don't people copy the mowing lines at Augusta? I don't get it. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, Clates? I remember Jeff Ogilvie saying on a State of the Game, another podcast we do, part of the Talk and Golf Network, which mm-hmm. you should go and visit, lots of quality podcasts over there. I remember Jeff saying, this is a little bit like Rand Morissette's lobotomy on the way home from the golf trip to the links. Everybody comes out of Masters Week every year saying, what an amazing place. They get everything right. Everything they do is absolutely bang on. And then every tournament director in the world goes out of their way to do the complete opposite at their own golf tournament yeah. for the rest of the year. It's bizarre, isn't it? We as humans are just strange animals. It's Yeah, and, and, and they come to Australia, like especially the sandbelt where the mowing lines are perfect. And they love it and rave about it. This golf is incredible. And they go back and they don't do the – none of them change what they do. It doesn't change anything about what they do. So it's very much an American obsession with hitting the ball straight. And, of course, the further the ball goes, the more they try and reward people who hit it straight, whereas, in fact, that they're just actually rewarding people at the ball a long way and who can gouge it out of the rough with a wedge and not a five iron. Well, that's kind of what it's turned into. Was that always the case, though? Before distance was such a thing – the penalty for being in the rough is less. We know that further down the fairway, they've done the mathematical calculation. You're better off to hit a wedge from the rough than a seven iron from the fairway. Was that always true, Clates? Where did this narrow fairways, long rough culture go? We, I mean, we always point out it's very American sort of thing. I don't think it's American golf. It's perhaps some golf in America, and we've got plenty of it here in Australia, and it's not hard to find it around the rest of the world. It seems like a knee-jerk reaction to something about scoring and there being some offence in people shooting low scores. Yeah, it's seen as an insult to a golf course if people shoot low scores. And it was a reaction to Hogan and the success the USGA had in identifying Hogan as the best player. And they came to the conclusion that here's the best formula for finding the best player. Let's have incredibly penal golf courses. Everything's the, the targets, also the targets, as in the greens and the fairways, all surrounded by rough. Yeah. And we'll reward someone like Hogan. But if you look at the winners of the Open in Britain, that had a much better and more consistent record in identifying the absolute best player in the world at the time. Because its test was, which is difficult to replicate in Britain, in America, because the grounds are much firmer and there's more win. Um, the Open identified the best player every year pretty much because of the difficulty of driving that ball through the wind. And it didn't need long grass down the sides to make the test difficult it, because it had the win. Mm. And yeah. the difficulty of the, the, the old ball and the, and the old driver and the skill it took to drive that thing so well through the wind. So when Tom Weisskopf was the best, playing the best golf in the world in 1973, he won the Open. Nicholas was always playing the, some of the best golf in the world, so he was always there. And Trevino, when he had a great run, he was he won those two. And so, if you look at the winners of the U.S. Open, which includes a whole pile of great players, there, there, there are always the kind of odd, the Orville Moody and Jack Fleck and Andy North and you know the, the, Scott Simpson, Scott Simpson, mm. Lee Jansen twice, Lee Jansen, Scott Simpson, who, who were you know tremendous players, mm. but they weren't. You know, if you go down the line of the Open Championship, every single one of them was a great player, year after year. Watson, Miller, Trevino, Nicholas, Weisskopf, Lima, Thompson, the whole lot of them. Well, I'm going to take, I'm going to take issue with you as some of our listeners will. Todd Hamilton, Todd Ben Hamilton. Curtis. Yeah. It's not well, yeah, and, and coincidentally, that 
well, that coincided with the, with the Pro V and, and the hybrid and the, and the, and the modern driver. Mm. Always got an answer. Touche. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> to all you listeners out there who are going to make that point, there you go. Sorry, Adrian, I cut you off. You were going to, going to say something. The, the long rough, to me, it feels like it's just this gutless decision. It's that lazy, isn't it? They know will tamp down. Like, it doesn't – there's no risk of the course being embarrassed if you've got this long rough, especially ringing around the greens and narrowing down the fairways. It just takes away the, any possibility that a place like Inverness could get embarrassed. And but I, I feel like Inverness looking at it on the weekend, it looked absolutely magnificent, like as a big playing field with these subtle dips and hollows mm. and things like that. And it reminded me a lot of you know what Oakmont looks like now as well. Mm-hmm. Both of those, though, it occurs to me though, if they just mowed the entire property, they'd be like they'd be the best be golf perfect. courses in the world. Like they'd be undoubtedly, they already are fantastic, but they'd be undoubtedly it'd elevate them up to a whole other level. Um, and but at the same time, it risks somebody. Yeah, somebody might shoot very low sixties on those golf courses. Isn't it? There's when, a flip uh, side to that discussion, that. isn't there, Clades? And it's a point that uh, our mate Huggy often makes, and he talks about the 2007 US Open at Oakmont. I think it was the third round. Tiger shot one under. He shot 69. The only under par round for the day. Certainly the only round in the sixties. And he came off the course and said. That's as good a golf as I can possibly play. And as Huggy says, if the most gifted player of all time that we've ever seen plays his absolute best golf and his best golf equals one under, then by default, logically, there's something wrong with the golf course. Well, you can afford to give up a little bit of the toughness to, to in favour of better golf. Yeah, but it's a good point, isn't it, Clay? So that, that, yeah. that we don't often think about a, a, a good golf course should give up good golf scores to good golfers. Yeah, Norman shot. I played that day. Norman shot sixty three at Turnberry. That was beyond belief. That score that should have been sixty two. So difficult that week. Mm. But uh, even greater example than than Inverness Rod would be Merion. Which first time I went to Merion with Bruce Grant, we walked around it, and it was such. It's such a great course. It's amazing how good that course is. We both thought, well, if they just cut this place like Kingston Heath, it'd be the best course in the world. It's just, but Marion's always had to try and prove its worth as an open course by defending all the short holes through the middle of it with narrow fairways and high grass. So when Justin Rose won there, what he should even par one over or something. Some of that, it was horrendous what they did to that. You know, they they can always manipulate the dimensions of the golf course to ensure some sort of winning score around par. But if that, you know, if they cut the course so they let 10 under win, place would be amazing. It'd be such a beautiful, elegant golf course. Mm. Yeah, it's just covered in long grass and it just takes away so much from how great that place could be. And, and it's already great. You know, it's a bit like criticizing guys that won the US Open. <laughs> That's true. Isn't it? You said, no, taking uh, shots at Scott Simpson and Lee Jansen. That's horrendous. Yeah. But who, who both won it? No, Simpson only won it once. Jansen won it twice. Twice, yeah. As Walter Hagen said, anyone can win the Open once. It takes a great player to win it twice. Well, Gil Hans, of course, just re, like, uh, renovated Marion, but unfortunately, it looks more choked out than ever. Like uh, the photographs I've seen, pe- people are raving about what the work that he's done there. But mm-hmm. all I can see is just these really narrow strips with a lot of land 
for such a small property. <laughs> it's not like there's no for such a small a property. Like space. there's a lot of land either side of these fairways, which has just all been cleared out, which is a little bit more evident now that there's less trees, and uh, it just looks even makes it look even more choked out that you're hitting to this little ribbon far off in the distance. I recall, Clates, before that US Open in 2013, we did a State of the Game episode in the lead-up as some of the pictures started to leak out of what it looked like. And I think it was one of our more listened-to episodes because those who are into architecture were horrified at what was done to Marion that year. And I think, to their credit and to Mike Davis's credit, it was a it was a bold and noble decision to take the US Open back to Marion, but I think 2013 proved that the US Open has outgrown Marion, sadly, not just in the course, but the logistics as well. There was some. We spoke to Matt Goggin, if you recall, afterwards, Clay. We did, yeah. And just just the getting to and from the driving range was um, it was difficult. The players staying in houses, and there was breakfast rooms in set up in houses that that line the course. And players, Mike Weir kids was are, sitting there. Kids and, are getting ready for school. Yeah, so, some kid came up with an iPad and wanted to show him a cut. <laughs> the dog was trying to eat his bacon off his plate. So. Uh, that's a real shame. It, it kind of begs the question, Clayton. We talked about Harding Park, and I think uh, Shackleford hasn't sort of been kind to it there. We had this discussion last year. Uh, it was actually a frank and open exchange of ideas I had with a few people about the importance of the golf course, particularly for the bigger events. We had a staggeringly good show put on at Bell Reeve by Kepka, Scott, and Woods on a golf course that all of us who have an interest in architecture would walk around and say, this is bland amplified. So how important is the golf course when the players themselves are the ones who put on the show clients? Well, it's and we watch pro golf every week and it shows us that the golf courses are not that important. But I, mean, I think it's I think they're important because I think that the more interesting the course, the more interesting the golf is to watch. So Bell Reeve I remember Kepka's great four iron at the sixteenth hole, but I don't remember anything of the golf course. It was just another kind of bash it, hit it straight-ish. I was had to play great golf to win, and it, Scott and Woods and Kepka were testament to the cream coming to the top. But is golf not more interesting when the courses are great? And you can't go to a great course every week, but how much more fun would it be watching golf at Sandhills or NGLA or – Shinnecock without it being screwed up by the USGA or Augusta or how great was Royal Melbourne? You know, as Rory said on the McKellar podcast, I tuned in to watch the President's Cup for the first time because they played at Royal Melbourne. He was going to come and play the Australian Open because it was at Kingston Heath. Yeah. Mate. So uh, was being the operative word. Yes. Um, well, certainly this year. And Merriam would have been perfect to play the US Open this year too. No crowds. That would have been perfect. True. But um, I guess you can't manage that but yeah for the golf geeks out there like us then watching a golf on a great course is infinitely more interesting than watching golf on a course that's not that interesting i didn't watch the mns tournament last week on the lpga but i'm sure that was more interesting than watching the average lpga course and that's something the lpga should do more and seek out better golf courses because they don't have the requirements of one the venue and two, the length of the golf course. So the PGA Tour need massive venues because of all the infrastructure and long golf courses because of how far the ball goes. The women don't don't have either of those problems. So if you were Mike Wan, you'd be seeking out all the best golf courses in the world and trying to get tournaments there. So, so the, the, the last time they played was Royal Adelaide. So they've gone from Royal Adelaide to Inverness. 
And in a couple of weeks, they're playing the Renaissance Club at Tom Doak Course near North Berwick and, and then Troon. So there's an amazing run of golf for them. And I think watching that, for want of a better word, product is more interesting when they're playing courses like that. But that's, you know, we're a small minority who care about the golf course. So, mm. but it produces better golf, more interesting golf. It, um, whilst they're a small minority, I, I think it would emphasize the importance of why courses are great. You know, TV would start to recognize that well, this is a great hole because, and, you know, if you had decent commentary, you could explain why golf was better when it's played on more interesting holes and courses that are cut properly. And, you know, so that's my take on is the golf we, course important. We haven't missed anyone the last couple of weeks, have we? We've done no. <laughs> North Berwick, the over 50s, now the course superintendents and greenkeepers for them. I, call, I call portions of North Berwick <laughs> yeah. bland. Yeah. Good, good bland. <laughs> good bland. Good bland. The, uh, yeah. the, the golf at Inverness was really good, and Daniel Kang won. Player. Serious player. Yeah, but she epitomised that thing of being accurate rather than straight. straight. And she uh, plotted her way around there really well. She hit a lot of three woods, which apparently is unusual for her. She's learnt to hit three woods, and she was very accurate. I mean, she learnt. She's, well, I, I don't know. She's I, a major I, winner. I, I read an interview. For, in fact, she hit a three wood to the last the year she won the PGA, which was just KPMG. money, if I was recall. It? it was the LPGA Championship. Oh, okay, sorry. The the KPMG yep. sponsored one. Yeah, yep, yep. yeah. But she hit three wood at the last there, which was that was a, that a was shot into a great amphitheater oh, of people. That was a real major one of the feel most about memorable that. Shots. Yeah, real major championship feel about that shot. Good thing to know. Good, good to realize that she's learned how to hit it since then. <laughs> so apparently, that's what she's been working on with Butch is uh, how to hit three woods. Jason Day said something similar a couple of years ago too, didn't he? That he can't hit a three wood. Right. He did. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. it's it's all right. it's all relative. Um, women are the best. Women are the best three wood players. I've been playing with Sue over a lot the last few months for obvious reasons. She got nowhere to play, but it amazes me how many great three woods and five woods and hybrids that she hits and they hit. They're just amazingly how good they are with those. Of course, they. You know, in fairness, she's only hitting it as far as Jason Day's hitting a four or five iron, but they're great shots. They're really good at it. Or we watched Lydia Coe at Royal Melbourne that day, close. That yeah. was just a clinic well, in how to hit hybrids, wasn't it? It was a staggering. Lydia stuff. had an interesting week last week, 69, mm. 80, 71 or something. Another new I'm, coach. I'm bullish about her. Yeah, I, I am she, too. So swing looks a lot great. better. I yeah. think she's going to do some good stuff again. Talent yeah. doesn't disappear, and she's an innate golfer, a bit like Spieth. Mm. To do what she did as early as she did in life, there's something innate there that can't be a maturity that's developed consciously, as yet, and that doesn't go away, Clates. I don't think. The, 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 and speak the same. I'm bullish about him too. He'll come back because he's got he's got the gift. I hope so. Golf needs speed. golf needs speed and Lydia too. Absolutely, she's returned to one of her former caddies as well. So okay. that she's got to Sean Foley now. I think she's changed uh, coaches. Sean Foley, yeah. Last time. Yeah, yeah. But now she's swinging it well yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, she seems to have be on the on the right trajectory. The uh, speaking of great golf on great golf courses. We've been treated over the last few weeks to snippets of the 1984 Australian Open by uh, Rob Williams. <laughs> featuring? <laughs> featuring uh, one Mike Clayton. Michael Andrew Clayton. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but I must admit, my memory of that Open didn't include you too much, Clayton. Like, I know I do recall you played with Watson in the third round, I think. And, and I played with Watson the first there. two days. Oh, in the first two days. Right. Okay. And you, yeah, I think you'd led it various times in those... In those I early stages, no, I was well? sixty-seven the third day, so I was uh, I was running second. I was tied with Finchy, one shot behind. I, I watched, I rewatched that. <laughs> was that a good idea, Clates? Are you yeah, kicking well, I yourself? I can't believe how bad my attitude was, <laughs> and how 
after I bogeyed the seventh hole, I thought I had no chance to win. When I was two off the lead, I made a, a stupid bogey on the on the ninth. It way over the green on ten and bogeyed that with a flyer. Hit a beautiful shot into twelve and bogeyed that out of the back bunker. Three putted sixteen and didn't oh. get up and down at seventeen. And you know it was just like horrendous my attitude. In terms of not that I was carried on, I was bad tempered. I just didn't think I had a chance to win. You know, I watched that tape and going, shit, I was, I was weighing that thing. Mm, yeah. It was, it was very head no down. One, two, shot, two shots back tricky in the day and on. no one was playing very well. Yeah. It was, it, was a hard, it was hard and bouncy and a bit windy and it was just one of those smelly, difficult days at Royal Melbourne. That, so I'd written myself off after the seventh, which looking back was – I hadn't realised how stupid it was until I watched what Robbie put up. Well, that was really dumb to think like that. Did, didn't someone comment that is there any shot that you've hit where you look happy with it? <laughs> you, you do look particularly unhappy for most of the footage, it has to be said, Glad. But they might just have only brought the camera to you when that – maybe the, the joking oh, and laughing bits they missed. That it's being unfair. No? Of course, the funny thing was about that tournament was that Watson had the wrong yardage on the 18th hole for three days in a row and hit the ball into the scorer's tent the first day, over the green the second day, and with a wedge in his hand the last day, he hit exactly 13 yards past the pin. Which was exactly the number the yardage was out from. So, all right. Now, hang on. Explain that to us. What was? Did, did his caddy get it wrong, or was it wrong in the well, book? Or his? What happened was there were no sprinklers at Royal Melbourne because there was no irrigation system. So, and because it's just kind of lined with tea tree, it's really hard to get yardages there. Not every hole's got a fairway bunker. So, and there were no, it was in the days before there were spots on the fairways. So it was a tricky course to get yardages from. And Paul Stevens was cutting for Watson and Craig Reed was cutting for me. It was a great, terrific caddy. And Paul had asked Craig for a couple of numbers when he couldn't find them and Craig had given them to him. On the last hole on Friday, Watson and I had driven it side by side up the last fairway. And I wasn't sure what club to hit. And I looked in his bag. He had a four iron. I walked over. To Craig, I said, what do you think? He said, it's a five-iron shot. Like, it was a definite, it's a five-iron. I said, he's got a four-iron. I said, yeah, he's got the wrong yardage. Craig said, yeah, he's got the wrong yardage. I said, you can't do that. Tom Watson, I said, you're trying to beat him, aren't you? So, of course, the yardage on the last hole was taken from the corner of a fence that around the, spon- the sponsor's village, lined up with a flag on the clubhouse behind it. That was how tricky it was to get a yardage there. Jesus. <laughs> and it was 150 from there, and Craig gave him 163. But Watson came over and pulled it and went up in the scorer's tent, so he just thought it was long because he pulled it. So the next day he had a seven iron into the, into the flag, and he hit it over the green again. And Paul came up to Craig in the car park on Saturday, on, on Sunday morning, and now I'm a shot behind, so he's not about to give him the right yardage. And he asked him what the yardage was. He said, well, it's 163 from the fence in the corner of the tent. So the fence and the flag. So instead of walking 100 yards and going checking it himself, he couldn't even be bothered doing that. So, of course, Watson's the best, best wedge player in the world at the time, probably. He bombed a drive down the 18th the last day. He needed a par to beat Bob Stanton, who played a great round. And he wedged it under the back of the green. The putt's almost exactly 13 yards long. So there you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, Katie's story. Clayton, what's the story behind you not getting into the final group there? But that's I, it. The final group was pretty sensational with Watson, Norman, and Baker Finch. 
Yeah, I was going to say, if you're a promoter, you'd rather... Is, is that the explanation? <laughs> right there. Uh, well, well, what happened was, and we argued with Marshy about it for, for a long time, um, when, when Marshy was the chairman of the, of the board, there was this one, three, five, two, four, six draw. So one, three, and five went out together, and two, four, six went out together. And it was because they, the theory was it would divide the galleries, which was kind of a pretty stupid theory. But they didn't want all the galleries going out with the last group because what you got that day with one, three, five was Baker Mitch, Norman and Watson and all the galleries out with that group and no one watching us. So that was the theory behind it. I mean, now it's just one, two, three, four, five, six, which is, which, which is how it should be and how it always should have been. Well, playing in threes is unusual. These days, isn't it on a weekend? Yeah. It's usually two balls on a weekend. Three was three common in that time, and, and why did that change? Do you know? Three was normal. That, do, we, do they still play threes in Australia on a weekend? No, don't think I so. No, God, now, isn't that ridiculous? I can't, I can't remember. No, they can't. No, I they, think they play twos on the weekends. Yeah. Play twos on the weekends. Yeah. Okay. And what what was that about? Same thing. Spreading the galleries. I wonder. Playing in threes? No, I just in twos. Playing threes because that was a sensible way to play. Yeah, I was talking about playing, Why would you in twos? playing threes. Why would you play in twos when you're playing threes? I, I know I never got. I, suppose, I mean, it's quicker, but it but it? it spreads the tee times out much more. Yeah, the golf goes on all day, doesn't it? Even on a Sunday at the Australian Open, it starts pretty early in the day to sort of get finished by six. What a time that was, Clates. Um, I watched a bunch of those highlights too. I mean, and you've pointed it out. You certainly hit some poor shots, but. Big chunk on the eighth, I think it was. That awful um, putt from just off the back of the green zone, which came about ten feet straight, straight away. Yeah, yeah we, but, could, we could go through yeah, that. <laughs> that's <laughs> a tricky shot because the greens are so. It was it's way downhill punting from the back of that fourth east green there, and you're going through a fringe which is not that quick onto a green that's like lightning, and it's easy to leave it. There's not much difference between leaving it ten feet short and getting to the hole. You don't have to hit it that much harder. Two two rolls more, it might have gone five feet past, mightn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it was the sort of putt if you hit it too hard, you could putt in the bunker, which was no doubt running through my mind. The Kepka thing. So, um, <laughs> just uh, putted it, uh, putted into the mind. What do you remember about sort of that day and that week? Because, of course, um, we forget, I forget. I think this happened to Richie Benoit as well. It's probably happened to Baker Finch with a whole bunch of people and Johnny Miller and Ken Venturi. We come to know people as commentators and people in the media, but, of course, there's a whole playing career that's come before it. It was years before I realised Richie Benno was actually an international cricketer. Honestly. Really? He was a commentator on Channel 9. <laughs> I'm not a cricket fan in my defence, so it wasn't like I'd studied it. But we forget, Clates, you were right there for a whole period of the sort of – certainly in Australia. You know, Clayton was always a name as mm. among the contenders. I mean, Norman was always – there's that top tier, but you were always sort of there. What was that like as a player? Well, it was always fun playing. It was always fun playing in Australia. We played generally – Pretty good courses. The crowds were great because Greg played most weeks or, or lots of weeks. Uh, it was it was a fun time. Yeah, you know, it was a fun time. There were good guys around. We were all growing up together. I mean, Finchie was just off leading the Open after three days at St Andrews. You now Grades, Peter Senior, Craig Parry was a leading amateur that that week. Terry Gale, and Roger Davis, and Terry Gale, who I played with the last day, were both playing really good golf. Roger was coming back after that was the first year back after his motel venture and he played 82 in Europe then 1983 spent the year in a motel and bought a motel business which went broke and so he went back on the tour which was the best thing that happened to him really 
That's and why funnily he, enough, that replayed later in his life as a senior as well, didn't it? He uh, he came back to golf, the right, Dodger, yeah, up yeah. on the Gold Coast where he was. His health wasn't great. He'd put on a lot of weight, and his family kind of had a bit of an intervention, and they sent him back to golf. And he went and played some seniors golf, lost a bunch of weight. Now I think he's the chairman of the PGA of Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, so golf, golf in Australia was really good then because there was a, there was a proper tour, as in you, you we played you know 15 tournaments if you included New Zealand. Mm. So the, the, the players were better known. That there was more golf in the newspapers. It was on the TV. So it was a proper sport. Yeah, Thompson was commentating, and it was which gave it some gravitas. It was it was really good. It was a so, tremendous tour then. All the state opens had great fields. Yes. And I remember watching year after year at the New South Wales Open at Concord. You'd have Langer was there one year. Then you know Norman would be there consistently, and it just some amazing players. I, I spoke to your old mate Pete Fowler uh, at length for the thing about golf podcast few weeks back Clates. what a terrific guy he just sat down and we just, we just chatted for about it was, it was over two hours by the time it was all said and done but at one point he mentioned in there that i think it was 83 he said he was having one of his best years he'd made 10 out of 10 cuts in australia and i found that jarring it's been so long since that was 10 the tournaments case in, in golf in australia you made 10 cuts and it's like wow you couldn't play 10 tournaments 10 four round yeah. tournaments in australia uh, anymore. What about Chuck Fowler, Clates? I really enjoyed chatting with him. He's, he's one of the games. Uh, genuinely good guys. You would have played a lot of golf with him. What was your take on on Chuck, who I find an intriguing golfer? He worked harder than anyone, and he and he figured out that he needed a great short game because he couldn't rely on his long game. So his short game, you know, he was world class, really, and still is. Still is, yeah, yeah, and a, just an absolute grinder. I mean, he just ground it out and. He went through some times of playing some terrible golf to the point where he went from winning the BMW in Europe to losing his card two years later, maybe three years later. Going back home to New Zealand, packing up, going home and you know, trying to make a living teaching. And he ran to Mel Tung, who taught Michael Campbell to play. And he said, I'll come out of the range, I'll, I'll work with you. And he got it back. I mean, he got it back. It was amazing. And he still plays really well. He won on the senior tour in Europe at the end of last year. It's interesting. I think people have arcs in their life as well. And Peter Fowler, although it was he was 22 or something, I want to say, when he won the Australian Tour. 24. 24, which is ancient. It should be ancient to win your first big tournament these days. But to me, I always, my recollection was always this is a bloke who won a big tournament really young and then was just sort of grinding the rest of his career to live up to that potential that everybody expected of him. Because I, I think there was a feeling like, you know, he's this big strapping Australian. It's like, is this another Greg Norman, you know? And, no, uh, no, with Chuck, no. Oh, the, no, the, no, of course not. But there was a little bit of that expectation, I think, after he won at Kingston Heath. There was like, oh, is, is he going to, you know, is he going to go on and dominate but then, you know, for the rest of his career, he was just sort of grinding to try and live up to that expectation. It was the sense I always got as, you know, from afar as a, as a spectator. But in a, in a way, that's given him this longevity. And I think people can relate to that in, you know, their own careers and things as well. Like there's these arcs that people have in their life where if you have big success unexpectedly soon or early, then... You know, you've, you've got to somehow live up to that, and that can result in some sort of longevity. But if you have success late, then you tend to just stop there. It's just full stop. You do a, you know, David Duval or something like that. So I don't know. It's, I've always wondered about that with Peter Fowler, and it was a fascinating interview. And credit to you, Rod. No credit to Fowler. Good, good interviews require two things: uh, a microphone and a good guest. 
<laughs> the, the rest really sort of uh, sort of takes care of its uh, care of itself. Uh, back to the PGA this week, Clates. Uh, what's your sort of interest level? I've found this whole coronavirus couple of months off with the golf. It hasn't had the same interest for me since it came back. Is that just I've had other things to keep me busy? In fairness, I'm trying to build a business here, I've opened another studio downstairs, and whole bunch of other stuff going on. So I've had lots of distractions. Humble but brag. if I imagine, yeah, humble brag. That's right. I, I texted Adrian a photo the other day on my Apple Air. I got two Apple TVs now, Clates, in my studio set up. One upstairs, one downstairs, and they're, they're labelled Talking Golf Central Studio One and Talking Golf Central Studio Two in my air playlist, so that was quite the achievement for me. But is it just me, or what's the return to golf been like? It's weird with the no fans. The bits and pieces that I see, it's an odd thing to watch golf with no fans, no crowds, no cheering. Mark Leishman, I interviewed him for the thing about golf. He talked about having trouble sort of lifting as a player with no crowds, that he finds it all a bit awkward and, and sort of and sort of changed the atmosphere. How have you found it, and how are you sort of looking forward to this first major of the year? It's, just, it's, all, it's all, so all over the place. We haven't watched any of it because we're not at. We've got Foxtel at home, and I guess we can watch it on the computer here, but uh, I haven't bothered to. So um, it just seems really odd to me. It's quite. It's um, well, not watching it's tricky, which is the problem with. I mean, it's great to have Foxtel so you can watch the US Tour, but if you don't have it, it must be annoying to not be able to ever watch it. Now, but Clades, do you watch it or do you have it on in the background Friday, Saturday, no, Sunday, Monday? No, I, I, I watch the majors. I have it on in the background in the morning if, on Sunday if I want to watch the golf, but. Um, I guess the, the talking points have been Deshamba, who's been interesting. Um, Kepka coming to form last week, which will be interesting to see how he plays this week. Because it's easy to dislike the former and love the latter for me. I like Kepka, I like his attitude. And just, I didn't, but I do now. And he's been, it was comedy gold with the anthill last week. That was some, You wonder whether he hit it in there deliberately. That was some yeah. brilliant stuff because he, he likes to give DeChambeau the needle. Uh, terrific yeah. interview he did with Eamon Lynch. But I'm like you. I've come around to Kepka. Yeah, I, I, I like the way he plays. I just I like I like the fact he went to Europe and played because that's kind of – you can assume that his attitude is a little more rounded than someone who's never been out of America. Um, and Bryson's kind of the – person that everyone's come to love to hate but because he acts like a dick at times <laughs> but to I put think too he, fine a point. he's important and then he's hot he's highlighted the the distance issue and it seems fine when you watch someone as beautiful as rory or weisskopf or sneed hit the ball phenomenal distances because they look so elegant doing it but you can bet the RNA and the USJ are looking at that going, is this what we want golf to look like in 20 years? You know, it's just not pretty to watch, even though technically his, his swing is terrific. Mm. Or 100 years. Accurate. He wants to live till he's 130. So mm. uh, I don't think he'd be swinging it like like. I find that then. playing golf like that incredibly stressful personally. Like, I have no desire to, to get myself up physically for every single shot like that. Like, you know, pump myself up to be like, I'm going to hit the shit out of this. I just is it, okay, so is it the future of golf? Shackelford told us on a podcast, I think it was earlier this year, Clotes, or maybe last year, that college coaches now base their decisions on who to recruit on almost nothing but club head speed. Speed, yeah. Mm. yeah. So it's, it's kind of depressing that you wouldn't pick a player on skills, but, you know, and people now say, well, distance is a skill. Well, distance was always a skill. In fact, it was more of a skill. More of a skill. With the old driver and the old ball, it's, 
how can it be more of a skill now when it's easier so to many do. people can hit the ball 320 yards and straight or 300 yards and straight and, and reasonably straight? And the way uh, TrackMan sort of democratised speed as well because they can optimise everything. They can optimise their movement. Like everyone talks about what athletes they are, but I think it, it's way overrated, the athlete side of it. It's more the method and the technique. And then they've got the body that Couple supports the method and the technique that they've optimised. So they get this instant feedback from TrackMan. It's like, oh, that feel produced that result. And so they get very good at reproducing a certain feel. And then I think they go, it, what comes later is the body that supports being able to repeat that. And I think that's where the athleticism comes into it. But it's, um, it, but it's funny how TrackMan's really democratised that ability to optimise and dial it all in. Hmm. So I guess I'm thinking at a bigger concept level, it's the question that faces you. There's no, there's no doubt we can go down the DeChambeau route and golf can be another bash sport. Most sports are bashing sports. Football's a bashing sport. You bash into each other and you bash the ball here and you And I can see there's a certain appeal out. None of that appeals to me. I'm not a fan of any of those other sports. Cricket's a bashing sport in many ways. Twenty twenty is the bashing game. Yeah, you, bash it. Bash it as hard as you can. Belligerent batsman. It is. It's it is. It's belligerent, <laughs> exactly. Golf's never been that. It's always been a more elegant pursuit. It's more like physical chess, which has always been the appeal of it to me. It's somewhat more like snooker in some ways, each shot dictated by the next shot that's coming. I think that that's a preferable and far more engaging game. But are we in the minority, perhaps, Clates? I don't mean just the physical. I mean, I'd rather watch Adam Scott swing the club than Bryson DeChambeau. It's a more appealing thing to look at for me. But the big question for golf is really about we can make it a bashing sport. That wasn't true with Ballada and Persimmon. But we can make it a bashing sport in the modern era if we want to. But I don't want golf to be a bashing sport. I think there's enough bashing sports. What do you reckon? Yeah, mind you, you watch Greg at his best. Greg bashed it. No question. Greg smashed it. Bashed or smashed. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing or it's the same thing, I'm not sure. But, you know, power was always rewarded, but it was, wasn't power that, ruined the essence of what the golf course was about. So that's what we're, we've descended into is the, the golf course becomes a place to bash the ball and the test that the great minds of the past thought ought to be examined or, or set is diminished by the fact the ball distorts that test because it goes too far. It's like doing an exam with a book when you've got half the answers there. You know, it's not the full test. So... Does it become less engaging to watch when clearly you know, McKenzie and the great architects thought that a part of the test was that there were long holes, long two-shot holes that are a test of fairway wood play. And I don't mean 600-yard holes. I mean 500-yard holes and 460-yard holes, par fours even. When was the last time we saw someone hit a wood into a par four? Uh, Inverness last week probably. Yeah. It'd be the LPGA. Which is arguably why the women's tour is more interesting to watch. Yeah. If they only went to great golf courses, it would be fascinating to watch. The golf course, you know, the dull golf courses they, they play at times takes away from the interest of watching it. But um, So the, the, the test is distorted by, as is the MCG with modern bats, when you see guys flipping it over the fence right. and, and, and hitting sixes. 
it's almost like the, the test analogy is interesting because it's almost like they've got the cheat codes, isn't it? I, I was listening to another podcast recently. What? Sorry, sorry. It was completely not golf related. Oh. But, it, I mean, this happens in every sport. You had it in basketball where they found, you know, statistically, even if you missed a bunch of three-pointers, Go going for three-pointers all the time was a bit of a cheat code. It, there's another example in some sort of frankfurt you know the frankfurt eating contest that they had oh god (laughs) do you know about up until about 20 years ago the winning number was about 10 right like or 10 or 15 or something which is still disgusting in in 10 minutes right which i I reckon i could no you couldn't you're an idiot but that used to be (laughs) that used to be like you know just a big guy would come up and go like i i can hail 10 hot i can do this but then that uh, Kobayashi came along. This Japanese kid, this skinny Japanese kid, came along and wolfed down fifty. Like he just he trained for it, Jesus, and, and just took it to another level. Like he it just suddenly and all these all these big guys who just used to turn up were like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, I, I had actually had breakfast this morning. Yeah, like natural this, advantage. And this here. kid's been training for this for six months, and he, he wolfed down fifty, and he showed them. He showed that sport in inverted commas. <laughs> That there's this whole other level that people can go to, and now of course the record's like 74 or something ridiculous like that. Um, and in a way, I think that's all Bryson's doing with golf. And nobody's well, I don't want to say nobody's done it with golf, but Bryson was performing at a certain level and just thought, Look, there just seems to be no reason why I can't really focus in on this one area and sort of unlock some cheat codes in this one area. and the, the frightening thing, I think, is for Bryson that he's done it now for driving. And, you know, now he's he's somebody who can just hit it 350 yards all the time. Is he going to do the Dustin Johnson and learn to do it with wedges? Exactly, yeah. I mean, he's not going to stop there. He's going to go through the bag and, and work it out and, and try and unlock some sort of a cheat code for every single level because he just thinks to himself, well, there's no need to conform with what everybody else has always done. Like, I can, yeah, I can well, in work fact, there's a need out. not to if you're Bryson. That's kind of his whole thing. His whole purpose for being is to be anti, anti exactly. whatever it is. I can do the Kobayashi and just come in and eat 50, 50 sausages because nobody else is thinking to do it this way, you know. So, Are we worrying – people call it, you know, calling for the sky is falling. Are we worrying unnecessarily about the game, Clates, or is Rory right, as he said on the McKellar podcast, that no matter what happens, ultimately – the artist will always win out. We've known DeChambeau has won once since he came back as the new Bryson, Bryson 2. He's been wowing everybody with incredible hitting distances and that funky-looking action that he's got going where he sort of finishes facing the target and all that sort of stuff. But he's only won the once. He has been in contention most of the time, in fairness. Uh, Are we overly concerned about the game or will the game ultimately Level. So you don't want to change it because of what he's doing. This, this has been going on for, for 20 years. You know, as, as Nicholas said, I've been going on about this for 40 years. It's, you know, it's time to stop studying it and do something about it. Mm. Directly aimed at the USGA, obviously. But, and he's right. It's time to stop studying it. And, I mean, it's a distraction to talk about players. And it's, yes, true. It's what the players and the equipment have done to the golf courses. And if you care about how the golf courses play at the at the top level and the test that the great minds in golf thought the game should be, then you've got to do something to restore the balance between the course and the equipment. And if you don't care about that, if you just think golf should be a succession of 330-yard drives and short iron shots, 
and courses that need to be 8,500 yards to recreate the test of 50 years ago. You know, if you think that's fine, then, then that's okay. Don't do anything about it. But, you know, it, it means that you're obsolete all of the great um, old golf courses in the world. So Hickory, um, when we transitioned from Hickory to steel and the golf balls got better, we obsoleted all the great old courses in Britain and, and America and Australia that were, that were 6,000 yards to 6,400 yards. They all became obsolete. So I'd had to lengthen out, which is what Kingston Heath did and a bunch of courses did. Or you just became a members club, which was fine. As, a, as obviously, a, that, that's the most important part of golf. But if you want to test championship golf, you can't just keep stretching it out. And so, what the modern era has done, the Pro V and the Titanium and the Graphite and the Bryson, has obsoleted every other. You know, we've, we're repeating 1930 again. So, so Kingston Heath at 1930 was 6,800 yards long and one of the longest courses in the world. Now it's completely obsolete. If the test the golf course was in 1930 is the measure, mm. you know, if the one and 17 were par fives, you know, there were long par fours, you, you hit long irons into a bunch of holes, that was the test that golf course was. Now, it's a great course, one of the best 20 to 50 in the world. But if, if the test in 1930 was that, then it's obsolete because it's so much shorter now. It's just, you know, Thomas Peters drove Nicholas Colsart's 80 metres from the green on the first hole from a new tee back in the clubhouse, basically. That hole used to be, it was a par five 55 years ago. And, of course, <clears throat> one of the biggest things that's changed from 1930 to now, all of that would be fine if we had an infinite amount of land and resources to take care of it. And in 1930, that wasn't really a problem. People with money would just go and buy up massive tracts of land and build new golf courses. The outside world has changed and golf's interaction with it has changed. If you're in charge of golf, that's a consideration, which is one of the things we wanted to talk about today, that we as golfers need to start to understand. Who did you find on Twitter, Clayton? Some girl who hates golf? Yeah, she's a, a – t- I don't do TikTok because the Chinese are investigating my data apparently, according to the president, but <laughs> – Use TikTok on 5G. You've got everything going for you then, Clades, right yeah. under the tower. I think it should be an anti-vaxxer as well. <clears throat> you could if you wanted to. Shout out to J.E. Oh, yeah. <laughs> J.E.'s an anti-vaxxer, yeah. Oh, is he? Yeah. I, bet I think I did know that. I note, I note there was not, not a lot of surprise in your voice there, Clades. <laughs> um, I've lost now. It was on my Twitter feed. It was about some viral, some sensation on TikTok and Twitter who's an anti-golfer. Which is fine. There was some important. It's probably got some good points. I, I didn't investigate it, but she's right. The golf is too green and uses at times too much water. But she's, you know, her argument, I think, was look at all this open space amid these cities. Well, what do you think is going to happen if it's not a golf course? Yeah. I get smothered in houses. At least that's you know, the course I grew up playing on is now smothered in houses. And so is the course Aaron Badley grew up playing on, smothered in houses. Kingswood's about to be the same. So, you know, if you lose golf courses, you turn them into parks. So how does the economics of that work? Or do you just smother them in houses? And the, the one thing golf's done a bad job of selling, certainly in Australia, is that um, golf can be and should be and hasn't been up until the last 20 years 
the great preserver of the, the indigenous environment, mm. not a European environment or not an Australian, an Australian native environment, but a, a locally indigenous environment. So if you go to Royal Melbourne, it's the only Royal Melbourne, Victoria, Kingston, the Sandbelt, they're the only places you're going to find the great old small tiny heathland plants that covered that area before Captain Cook got here. So golf courses can be the great preservers of indigenous vegetation because God knows our cities are not. You know, we've Europeanized and Australian nativized for one of a not sure what the proper word is for that, but you know, there was this we figured out that European trees perhaps weren't the way to go. So we smothered Australia in native trees as if importing something from Perth and lobbying it in Melbourne was somehow okay. When the great mistake we made, well, the Europeans made when they came to Australia was not understanding how fragile and how important the, the, in, the local flora and fauna was and don't mess with it. And we mess with it. And, 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 the, and the golf is just a microcosm of that. And we planted golf courses out with European trees and then native trees and, and to the point where, you know, lots of them are, are a complete mess in terms of what's planted on them. If, if your measure is what was growing here before, the, before we put a golf course on this land? Lamandra's native. Then, you know, people would say, well, we love the way golf courses look now. So, so the next question would be, do you think a golf course should, should, should be natural? And they would 100% would all say yes. And the surest way to make a golf course feel unnatural is to plant stuff on the land that doesn't belong. So that's kind of a – we've sort of segued into some sort of weird environmental well, discussion. Well, but but which know, are, golf courses should be the great preservers of it, the, the, the urban indigenous environment, and, and, and golf failed in that because people who planted them out didn't understand how important that was. But we're getting back to that. You know, I know in, in the design world that was something that I pushed really hard was let's go back and plant this golf course out with trees and, and – heathland plants that belong on this site, not that belong in Margaret River or in Naruma or other parts of the country, because that's a big mistake. It's another one where we haven't really taken the like example from the UK. Hmm. In the, although, I mean, the UK, of course, destroyed all of their natural environment and they've got interesting heathland and moorland now, but they they also have golf courses set in these these commons where they're actually big pieces of land, like I'm thinking of Hinkley Common, I think it is, or something like that, where there's a golf course set out in these massive properties. Uh, strangely, what we struggle with, despite being a really big country, is our golf courses are all set in tiny little properties in metropolitan areas. What's tiny now? wasn't tiny well, when that, they were... Well, that's right. That's right. The issue that there's all this about. suburban sprawl has surrounded yeah. them and choked them out. And you can't really take on that common model that they have in the UK where the, it's just free land, everyone can roam around, and there's also a golf course on it. But there's this, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of separation between some of the holes and there's walking defined walking paths throughout the course and it's just pretty natural-looking woodland or what, what passes as very natural-looking woodland in the UK now. Uh, but I often think, you know, if you just renamed Moore Park, it's Moore Park Common a lot of the objections would go away. and uh, But, of course, you have to formalise the fact that people should be able to walk around it and all that sort of thing. But then you've got this problem of it's just a really small property with all of the fairways up against each other and there's just danger spots all over the place. So, it, It's a sort of a, th 
three-pronged question in some ways, isn't it, Clades? If, if you believe, as we do here, that public golf's important and it's important for private golf and for all of golf, public golf is, is the bedrock of all of that, <clears throat> it's then got to satisfy people beyond golf. And golfers need some education, we know that. And this is kind of how we do it. It's the next frontier in some ways in architecture. It's the stuff we never talk about. We talk about great golf holes and the interesting challenges they pose is one of the next great challenges for golf architects and golf design, particularly in the public golf space, this notion that Andy Staples has of community golf. How do we make the course and the space shareable beyond golf and workable? Is it possible, Clates? Well, the old, that's what the old course is. Anyone can walk on the old course, mm -hmm. St Andrews. It's public land. So tear down the fences and let people walk on it. Let people walk their dogs and interact with the golf course. I mean, the worst you – know, people talk about growing the game, or well, I've said before, and perhaps not this podcast, but, you know, golf's got these fences around it, whereas the greatest course in the world has no fences around it at all. Anyone can walk on it. So, of course, there's a safety issue, and people are terrified of – unreasonably of vandalism. Someone's going to – you know, if we don't have a fence, someone's going to spin their car over the greens, which is probably pretty unlikely. It's not unheard of in fairness, but no. But the classic case was the course near where I live in the city, Elstonwick, little terrible little public course, but nine holes and a place to play golf. But the council let it go; it was in awful shape, and they spent no money on it. And it could have been a much better course than it was, but they closed it down. So now it's just a overgrown field, trees on it, which was fine. But they should have built. Right on the corner, the, the clubhouse was right at the pro shop slash clubhouse was right on the corner of, you know, two massively busy roads. Hundreds of thousands of cars would go past it every day. Probably, you know, lots of apartments and lots and lots of people living within 10-minute walk of it. If you built a Himalayas putting green there and had a great coffee shop and had free clubs and balls just, just lying around that kids could walk over and grab and smash the ball around a putting green, that's how golf should be engaging with the community mm. because you're actually playing golf without even knowing it, without the fear. The great fear of the new player is not being able to get the ball in the air and looking stupid. Anyone can putt. Anyone can knock the ball on the ground with a stick. If you've got a wild, crazy Himalayas putting green on the corner of Nepean Highway and uh, whatever road it is, Glen Huntley Road, um, and kids can walk up and pick a putter out of a barrel and whack a ball around it for the game would go nuts. I think the the happy byproduct, of course, Clates, is that you'll you'll uncover all the golfers who didn't know they were golfers, the people who find that intriguing, mm. uh, who, who perhaps don't find tennis or football or soccer or yeah. any of the other games particularly have grabbed them. They'll discover golf. Oh, wow, now this is interesting and it's all on me and all of the other benefits that we know come personally from from an involvement and a, and a love of the game can all be unearthed by something like what you're describing. How do we make it happen, Logue? We've been banging, I can't think of the solution. We can all identify mm. the problem. We all can think about what probably should happen. How do we kind of make it happen? When do we get our first winter park? Well, well the problem with the model in Australia is that Councils own the golf courses and lease them out to operators who, whose object is to make money out of them, which is that's why they do it. So they're never going to 
shut the golf course or spend money on the architecture. They're only going to maintain it. So unless you have a state government who have donated money or um, to rebuild Sandringham, which was a the course over the road from Royal Melbourne, which had the potential to be really good. The land was fantastic, but it was just basic. The people had run that place over the over 50 or 60 or 70 years had never spent any money on the architecture. So uh, the course has been rebuilt and it's going to be tremendous. And it doesn't, it only takes time and a commitment and some money to, to make golf, make that golf so much better. And, and for the next 50 or 100 years, as long as Royal Melbourne keeps looking after it, which they will, that's going to be a tremendous golf course. Yeah. Really good. So much better than it was. So does it attract more people to play because the golf course is better? Well, you know, if, if everyone got to play Royal Melbourne for their first game of golf and that was what golf was, then golf would be a, would be a much more popular sport. But, of course, there's a role for the public golf course, and they're important. And I, when I first started playing golf, I didn't care what the golf course was. I, know, I didn't know there was such a thing as golf course architecture. All I wanted was a tee and a green and somebody hit the ball. So we all start on rudimentary golf courses and graduate up. So public golf is important, and I think the better it is, the more it will it'll attract people to the game. But it, but it needs to be – when the whole debate at Sandringham was, do you build a full-size 12-hole course with a par-3 course, which I thought was by far the best idea, or do you, because they were losing two holes to a driving range, just reduce the golf course down and, and, and have a much smaller version of 18-hole golf? And I think the right answer was to build a full-size 12-hole course with a great par-3 course. But golf needs to be inventive and That's not right. stuck on this 18-hole model. Why, why can't you have a great 12-hole <laughs> course or a great nine-hole course or a great six-hole course or a, just a great Himalayas putting green? Why must it always be 18 holes? Someone's got to do something bold, don't they? Somebody has to be the first to do it. It's risky. We know it's risky, but it needs to be done so we can see that it. I, I think it will work. If I had all the money to do it, you'd have a go at it. But I don't. There's a couple of places that are ripe. Is the time ripe, Adrian, with Elstonwick that Clates just mentioned? Perhaps could still be a possibility. We've got Botany Golf Club here in Sydney, which yeah. you were at just a few weeks ago, yeah. which has the potential to do something like that. It would need investment. Botany's a complete blank slate, but the investment wouldn't be that colossal. Like, oh, look, I don't know, but it'd be... You're not talking investment without a potential return. It's a risk, but no, it's not that it's... it's a fantastic little community there around Botany, really thriving little strip of shops and pubs and stuff. And then there's this golf course, which just looks like a bit of a blight on the landscape, to be honest. It's it's just a like a untended paddock with a terrible clubhouse that looks like a toilet block and... <laughs> But in, in fact, it's nice sandy soil and uh, a, just a blank slate that somebody could come in and there's plenty of room for nine really good holes there and maybe even a driving range. It's it's. I like the Himalayas putting green more than the driving range idea, I think. Or the, yeah, driving or the, range the, gets, the pitch and putt, I think, is a... There's no denying driving ranges get people through the door. I, I just think a lot of the problem... It, one thing Botany has going for it, no fences... Oh, no, there are some fences, but there's plenty of gaps in the fences and you do see people walking across the fairways and things there, but there's really nowhere to walk to because there's a freeway on the other side. But that said, the fence thing, to me... It's ridiculous that country courses even have fences around them. And we take this model, like, golf clubs seem to think to be a proper golf club, you've got to have 
fences and got an exclusionary. You've got to let the members in and you let the, and keep the riffraff out. And funnily enough, as well, when we build golf courses, even in the country in Australia, we sort of constrain it to the same sort of size pieces of land that you have in the city because there's this perception that that's a proper golf course and you fit it within these boundaries and then you put a fence up. Now, this goes back forever. I remember Maitland Golf Club. Um, I used to, well, I lived across the road from the ninth tee and uh, at some time of an evening I'd go across and, you know, sort of fit through the fence, which was a pretty basic fence back then, and just chip around the green on the eighth green. And I got reported. Now, I'm Like I'm a member of the golf club. And people do that all the time, don't they? They just like wander on in the evening and have a little bit of a chip around the green. It would if you lived near a golf course. I did that a couple of times yeah. as, as a junior, but I got reported to the committee. And and then, like I think a few years later... Were your socks done, too short? There's a was massive the fence. This is a con- country golf course, like a very relaxed country golf course. But then they've put up a massive fence that's impossible. Like it's actually about 10 foot tall, that fence there now. And, Somebody uh, in big fence in in in, in fence land. They talk about a legendary salesman of the seventies and eighties who just went around and sold fences to golf courses all over Australia yeah. and built an incredible dynasty of uh, fence manufacturers because he was just so good at. Uh, I think whoever supplies fences rope to golf courses in Sydney does very well yeah, as well. Big, like big every rope. yeah, there's <laughs> roping off areas of wet wet turf and stuff like that. I think every time uh, Greens yeah. Committee review their rope budget, they're like, oh, yes, we need to... Well, I think we've solved most of the problems of the game, so that's good. So it's time for golf highlights of the week. Have a think about yours, Clates. I actually don't have one because there's been not much golf in my life of late, but I know that you have one, Logue, because I saw it on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, well, I had a hole in one. As you would. It's my second hole Whereabouts? in one. Whereabouts? No, no big deal, really. On, on the 11th at, uh, at Pinball Golf Club. Same, sh- same hole that I had... My first hole in one. So, if Alan Shipnuck is listening, he will have just fainted that you said it's no big deal because uh, he's yet to have one. Now, you were using the disappointing a... thing was I was using a really old ball. Which, Why? Uh, as I said in the comments, it's like going on a date with your yeah. worst pair of underpants. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, well, that'd be bold too, and and somewhat uh, I've, forward. <laughs> I've only got I've only got old balls in my bag. <laughs> it's just why. Uh, I don't know. I just you're I, employed. I I use the balls that I get for free or very cheap, and then there's nowhere to lose balls really at pinball. So I just I keep playing with them. And that ball that I got the hole in one with, I think it had had it's on about its sixth game, and uh, uh, yeah, I do look down a little bit guiltily at the ball every now and then and think to myself, I really should, you know. We know what to get you for Get a new one out. But for your birthday. At the same time, I just... I don't They're just golf balls, aren't they? I don't hit it that well, and it's not going to make any difference having a really clean new golf ball for me. So Indeed. I, just, I well, use them until they're completely, like, completely scuffed up. And well, congratulations happy. anyway. Fantastic. Uh, I've only had one in competition, and it's uh, quite exciting when it happens. So It's really amazing seeing the ball disappear. Well, you're in shock at first. You're thinking... I must have gone behind the flag. Yeah. Because the ball never goes in. Yeah. For us. Seeing it disappear is, is really amazing. a weird feeling. Yeah. But for pros, it's different. So I did I had a chat with Scott Hand on the thing about golf. And I didn't ask him about this, though I meant to some weeks ago. He's had six albatrosses in his life. Wow. And I remember asking him about it once before. I think four of them have been in practice rounds. And he said, mate, when you're stupid enough to go for as many greens as I do in two, <laughs> you're bound to get lucky occasionally. That was his response. Clates, you're a serial holer outer, aren't you? Yeah, I had a, a hole in one a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I know. 
You never mentioned it. I think it took Sue O to say something before anybody knew. Yeah. I was playing with her, but it wasn't a wasn't that it was a, it was a decent shot, but it wasn't great. But the, a couple of days before, I hold a forward. It, I played a moon length with Sue, and I had a forward in the. It was funny. There were two guys playing in front of us, and they watched her. She held a wedge on the eleventh hole, like a fifth, about a sixty-yard wedge shot. We played the twelfth. Thirteen's kind of a green down in Adele. And I hold the four. These two guys playing in front, they couldn't believe what they were watching. <laughs> Who are these people behind us? They're holding everything. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I hold a four, which was kind of, And it was a proper four. I was going to say, it was a Woodward, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, my McGregor 1958 forward, which was kind of cool. But, yeah, it was my 20th hole-in-one, which is kind of weird. And I nearly retweeted. I didn't tweet it back. It was too hard to try and tell the story. But you are so blasé about it. I played golf with Clates once. I wasn't there down at Bamboogle last year. We had the cool study tour down there. Hmm. But on the first round there, he played with a bunch of guys. And the seventh hole is what, 123 yards, I think, Clates? Yeah, 125 yards, yep. 125 yards. So it's howling a gale. It's blowing a hoolie. And, and as it's told to me, Clates pulls out a four iron, barely stops talking, punches this incredible low shot into the ground, which stops six feet from the hole. Never says a word. They walk up chatting about this, that, and the other. He walks up and just doesn't even putt it. Just picks up his ball. <laughs> a, you know, career shot for anybody who's ever played. Just doesn't even bother putting it. Just walks up and just chatting about the landscape and how they found the hole as he just scoops it up, doesn't even bother trying for the birdie. So you've played too much golf, I think, Clates. That might be the problem yeah. for you. 20 holes in one. Yeah, how many of those in tournaments? And did you win any cars or cash prizes? Uh, I did. I won. Well, I turned pro in... The end of '81. The, one of the first tournaments in 1982. I I played terribly at the Tasmanian Open the last day, I, but I hold a four iron at the last hole for 76, and won five thousand dollars. When I went, so I went to the presentation to get the money, and Jack Newton had finished second by a shot. Newton and Stuart Ginn and someone else had finished second by a shot, and Jack was you. Prick, he said, you've won fucking five grand. He said, I've played my ass out all week and run two and a half thousand. <laughs> so I went the next week to the Vic Open and made another hole in one and won 20,000. <laughs> that was at Metro, wasn't it? That was at Metro, yeah. yeah. And then I um, I won a car in, in Padrania, Seve's course. I hold a three iron, won a car there, a Peugeot, little Peugeot. Wow. There you go. But um, I've had, a, yeah, quite a few of them in tournaments. Maybe maybe Greg was right after all. It is better to be lucky than good. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Indeed. Yeah. Got a golf highlight this week, Clates. Maybe it was the last shot yet. I saw you set out a twilight shot yesterday. You know, wondering in reverence when you might be back on the golf course. Yeah. There'll be none yeah. for six Quick, weeks. No golf. No, no highlights this week. Well, um, no, no highlights really. Just it was um, apart from Inverness, which I didn't see on TV, but that was a just seeing pictures of that was great and. Seeing the LPGA playing a great course was heartening and good. And watching yourself hit all those poor shots at the 1984 Australian Open and yep. get your head down and have a bad attitude all goes into the memory <laughs> bank. It'll make you a better caddy, which I think you've said many times before, uh, yep. that it's uh, that it all helps to make you a better caddy. What did you say to me about Sue O once? <laughs> it's embarrassing to caddy for her when you see how she deals with all the adversity and you remember how you used to behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you can't feel anything but uh, humility. How's she going, by the way? I know she's trying to get back to the States. Is she stuck here now? Is she going to get out for the Scottish she's Open? She's out on um, – Lucas Michelle's going to the US Amateur on Thursday. He must feel almost like it's personal. 
this, this pandemic mm. has ruined his golf life in so many ways, hasn't mm. it, Paul Lucas? Yeah, so he's going to the US Amateur on Thursday. Then he's got um, the US Open and the US Masters. So he's Good. away for a month. Yep. Sorry, uh, four months. And Sue is going on Saturday to um, the Renaissance Club for the Scottish Open, then Troon for the British Open. Well, good on and then she goes to the LPGA Tour. Well, good on her. So, so she's gone until I think the US Open, the US Women's Opens in December this year. I, I think, think it is, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Late. So, yeah, so she won't be back until um, mid December, really. Well, best of luck to her. She's one of golf's good people, and we haven't yet seen the best of Sue I don't think, on the LPGA Tour, so perhaps all that golf she's been playing with you uh, might have uh, sparked something. But, Clates, it's always great to chat to you. It's been great again today. Thank you for taking the time, mate, particularly at short notice, and congratulations on the microphone. You don't sound anything like the old Clates. It's a whole new ball. Hopefully it works. I'll keep it with me. Yeah. Well, it's small enough to carry, isn't it? If you're into podcasting, you want to buy a Rode NT-USB Mini. Terrific little okay. microphone. So Very good. You've got the big I've version the big at home. One. I know yeah. that, Logan. And they're a good microphone as well, but this one is you can chuck it in the laptop bag and take it with you. Uh, Logan, great to have you all board, mate. Thank you. Congratulations on your holding one. Oh, thanks very much, Rod. And thanks. I hope, for I hope you've got a golf highlight of your own for next time. Uh, so I'm sure soon. I'm starting to get the bug a bit. I might have to go back and have a hit at some point soon. It's been a while for me. So uh, I saw my golf clubs the other day at home for the first time in a long time. It's a long and complicated story, but well, I saw them and I thought, Go for oh, a hit at a Botany or something. Uh, maybe. We'll Marikou. see how we go. Time's the problem for me. I know everybody always says that, and I could probably make time for just, golf, but I've got other priorities at the moment. That's the truth thing. of it. Yep. Uh, so anyway. All right, been terrific. Episode 43 in the books. I've already got a guest lined up for next week, which I'll tell you about when we finish here, Logan, but I won't tell you the listeners because it's uh, always better to the best. But I really test the loyalty of the listeners to not know what's going to be on, but tune in anyway. So episode 44, that'll be next week here on the Good, Good Golf Podcast.